Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Alitu. Podcasting is a lot of hard work, which is why I'm so glad that I found Alitu. Their user-friendly sound editing software has cut my editing time down to a third, leaving me the space to bring you more content. Shout out to Allegra, Judy, and the rest of their support staff who are always there to help me navigate the various challenges this podcast journey throws my way. To learn more about Alitu, go to the link in this episode's show notes to get started with a free seven-day trial. Using my link also helps to support this podcast. Hello, everyone. Today I am bringing you part two of the review that I've been doing on Cicely Tyson's book, Just As I Am. So just like the last episode, because Cicely Tyson was such a phenomenal person full of wisdom, I'm not going to give a ton of commentary on the quotes that I share, because they definitely speak for themselves. Because Cicely Tyson lived 96 years, she has lived through a lot of significant periods of history, uh, including Jim Crow, the Civil Rights Movement, and beyond. So here's a quote. During my lunch break one day, I scoured the classifieds in the New York Times looking for apartments. I found one, and when I turned up, a white woman answered the door. I'm inquiring about the apartment you have vacant, I said. She slammed the door before I could even finish my sentence. I found another place, and this time I called first. The woman explained that she was about to vacate the apartment, to which I replied, I am black, and if you have feelings about allowing your apartment to be rented by someone of that race, tell me now. She laughed. You don't have to worry, she said. My husband is black. That's how I ended up as the lone black person in an all-white building. End quote. So here's another encounter that she had. Quote, During the 1950s, I took a road trip with a friend of mine, a musician by the name of Eddie. He and I drove from New York to Georgia, winding our way through Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Somewhere along the back roads of Alabama, we stopped at a small restaurant to get something to eat. He parked and went around back to put in his order. I stayed in the car. Moments later, he jumped back in the car, out of breath and gripping a brown paper bag containing his food. He shoved the key into the ignition. What's the matter with you? I asked him, laughing a little. Why can't we sit here and eat? Shh, he said, starting the engine. Don't laugh. We got to get out of here. After we'd driven a distance, he exhaled, and I started in with my questions. Why did we leave there so fast? I asked him. He looked straight ahead at the road. We're in the south, Sicily, he said. What does that mean? I asked. It means it wouldn't take them but a second to pull me out of this car and lynch me right here. I will never know what happened around back outside of that restaurant. Eddie never revealed it to me. Perhaps, while he waited for his order, someone had shot him a look that sent shivers through him. Perhaps he dared to breathe in a white person's direction. 
Perhaps, thinking of Emmett Till, he feared the imminence of death, his own lifeless body floating down a river. That experience piqued my first deep interest in the mistreatment of our people in this country. I began reading, taking in all I could about our history, about the assaults that tested us but could not break us. It stung me even as it flung open my eyes. America has our blood on its palms, our flesh between its teeth. When you come to understand what we have endured, when you let the barefaced savagery of it all truly penetrate, you are forever haunted by the horror. End quote. So the next section that I'm going to share is a longer one, but it is hands down one of my favorite parts of the book. Cicely Tyson talks about her own experiences with embracing her natural hair, which I've shared in previous episodes on this podcast is very important to those in the black community. So I'm going to share some sections from that chapter and you'll kind of see why she's such an inspiration to me. Also, you might hear some background noise. My dog is a little annoyed that I put him in his cage and I'm actually recording this before my daughter wakes up. So you may hear a little bit of squawking and screeching from a 19-month-old. So anyway, I'm going to hop into this quote. I never set out to start a natural hair craze. On the day I showed up at Shalimar Barbershop in Harlem, I simply wanted a haircut. What came next stunned even me. The year was 1962. I was in The Blacks by then and had also been asked to take a role in Between Yesterday and Today, the CBS Sunday morning drama. In a single live episode, I was to play an African wife, a woman who, once in the United States, wished to preserve her cultural heritage. The cast rehearsed the day before the show, and like many black women in those times, I was then wearing my hair relaxed. This character wouldn't have worn her hair straightened, I kept thinking as we ran through the script. So adamant was this woman about embracing her native culture, there was no way she would have chemically processed hair. It didn't feel right to me. So I took myself to Shalimar's, the place where Duke Ellington used to get his hair cut. A barber greeted me and introduced himself as Streamline. How may I help you today, miss? He asked. I would like to have my hair cut, I said, and I want it as short as you can possibly get it. The man stared at me as if I had a unibrow. Excuse me, what do you want? You see my hair, I said, pointing to it. I want it cut, and then I would like to have it shampooed so that it goes back to its natural state. He coughed. Are you sure that's what you want? I'm sure, I said. He put me in his chair and draped a cape around me. He then turned on his clippers. As he proceeded to cut, I closed my eyes, mostly because I didn't want the sight of my neck-length hair to deter me from my mission. He cut for 15 minutes or so before saying, Well, how do you like it? I flung open my lids. It's not short enough, I told him. My hair then was probably 8 inches, and he cut it down to about 5. I want it as close to my scalp as you can get it, I told him. Okay, miss, he muttered. Whatever you want. I closed my eyes again and let him buzz away. Even once he turned off the clippers and said, Okay, let's go to the shampoo bowl. I kept my eyes closed as he led me to it. 
He shampooed me once, twice, and a third time. Then he took me back to his chair, blow-dried my hair, rubbed some pomade through it, and patted it down. What do you think, he said. When I opened my eyes and saw myself in the mirror, I said, That's her. My half-inch fro looked exactly to me like the one my character would have worn. The next morning for the show, I strode into the set with my head tied in a kerchief. I got my makeup done, my costume on, and heard the director yell, Places, please! Just as I walked onto the stage, I pulled off my scarf. The room stopped. By the dumbfounded look on the director's face, I was sure I was about to be fired. Sicily, he said, walking slowly towards me. You've cut your hair. I nodded. You know, he said, drawing in a breath. I wanted to ask you to do that, but I didn't have the nerve. My character is who gave me the audacity. Anytime I've changed my hair over the years of my career, it has nothing to do with me personally. It has always been about being authentically in character, about staying as true to her essence and appearance as I can. That has always been my sole intention. And yet, when that episode aired, all anyone could talk about was this actress who showed up on television with a nappy head. That was only the beginning. The next year, the actor George C. Scott saw me in The Blacks. He asked my agent to send me over to audition for the East Side, West Side, the CBS series he starred in. So soon after, I read for the role of Jane Foster, a secretary to an unflinching New York City caseworker. As I left the audition, I asked the casting director, what should I do with my hair? Again, I wanted to ensure my hairstyle would reflect the character. Leave it the way it is, he said matter-of-factly. I played on the series for one season and was the first black woman to star in a television drama. I also was the first black TV actress to reveal my hair in its bare-naked state. Within weeks of my first appearance, letters began pouring in. All over the country, hairdressers wrote to the network, claiming I was impacting their business. My clients want to have their hair cut off like the black girl on your show, they wrote. Episode after episode, the letters continued arriving by the bushels. I now wish I had the sense to save some of them, just so I could read them again and laugh as I remember. This actress has all of our customers chopping off their hair, the salon owners noted. In that sense, their business was thriving. Never had there been such a demand for female barbers, some said. But their earnings for chemical services? Gone. Or at least notably curtailed. That's how the natural hair trend of the 1960s began. So I'm going to continue to share some of the insights that I gained from this part as she was talking about her role in the natural hair craze. But this next section is going to tap into the internalized hatred that those in the black community tend to have. Um, And as we've talked about, or as I've talked about in previous episodes, this can be traced back to the treatment of black people in this country and the generations of people learning to or being taught to feel as if they're less than. So I'm going to hop into that now. The first time my daughter saw me with my fro, she gasped. She then called my mother and told her I cut off my hair. What do you mean she cut off her hair? My mom breathed into the receiver. She wouldn't be so damn foolish. 
She was something else, that Frederica, and certainly never one to clamp her tongue when it came to her children's choices. For a while, she wouldn't even let me come to her apartment. You're not going to embarrass me in front of my neighbors, she said. God help that woman. While I was on East Side, a black organization in D.C. flew me in for a big award to recognize me as a partner in the emerging trend towards natural hair. When the splendorous celebration was over, the leaders got down to the root of what they actually felt. They whisked me into a side room and told me how I was degrading black women by wearing my natural hair on stage for the entire country to witness. You're in a position to glorify our beauty, one said, and you're doing the opposite. You're wearing your hair nappy on live television. Can you imagine the hypocrisy? Child, I sat down the award they'd given me, marched right out the door, and never glanced back. How is it degrading to walk through the world displaying the hair I was born with? It wasn't. It's still not. And yet, over centuries, we've been taught to be ashamed. It did not begin that way. Our ancestors, long before they were sold from their homeland, took great pride in the appearance of their hair. Our foremothers created the world's most ornate, intricate, and diverse hairstyles, squeezing their youngins between their thighs, swapping laughter with every braid and twist. In our communities, to be groomed was to be loved. With our mother's hands down in our scalps, in the tenderness present in their palms, we felt cared for and connected. Hair for us was the opposite of disgrace. It represented intimacy. During the Middle Passage, our untended locks became matted. Our rituals and unique hair tools were stolen from us. In the New Land, European traders often cut off the tresses of their cargo, their animals covered in wool, not human hair. The dehumanization did not end there. In European narratives, our hair has been presented as mangy and unmanageable, dirty and rough. White folks have been otherizing us for hundreds of years, initially because that served a purpose in justifying our enslavement. Brutes, or those labeled as less than human, needn't be accorded respect. Just as they have policed our bodies, they have criminalized our tresses while attempting to extinguish our very existence. In minstrel shows, in books, on television, in kitchen table conversation, our natural hair has always been under siege in a calculated campaign to devaluate us. In hindsight, I do not fault my mom or even the leaders at the awards banquet for decrying my natural hair. The crusade to hide our crowning glory, to consider its texture somehow inferior to that of whites, has hooked its claws into all of us in one way or another. It is as insidious as it is pervasive, like dust particles in the air. You breathe in the toxins without recognizing they're even present. Moreover, a black woman's hairstyle in this country has often been linked to her survival. In the color hierarchy set up by slave owners, the closer you were to looking white, fair skin, loose curls, rather than tightly coiled ones, the higher your status in their eyes. Over centuries, we were taught to disregard ourselves, a habit we are still unlearning. How I hope that we can. 
And while striving to do so, I also pray we can begin defining ourselves for ourselves, dismissing the 300 years of a Eurocentric beauty standard hovering over us. As gorgeous as our locks appear, as powerfully as they express our artistic genius, as often as they've been used as a barometer of our politics, our hair is not truly who we are. We are defined not by what grows from our heads, but what flows from our hearts. That is our greatest testimony. Our hair may be a crown, yet a life of love and service is our real glory. So as we navigate our journey, let us graciously make space for one another. Whether you relax it or coil it, weave it or dread it, cover it with a wig or cut it plumb off, the choice is yours. Good hair is your hair however you decide to wear it, end quote. So as you can see from what I've shared so far, there's a lot of layers to Cicely Tyson's experience of being black in this country, and there's a lot to be learned from her memoir. So quote, that was the 60s, a peculiar combination of fashion and frivolity, protests and profound social turmoil. The era radiated with ethnic pride, as Black Panthers donned kente cloths and proclaimed, Black is beautiful. It spat back at its oppressors with the Black Power Movement insisting upon change by any means necessary. It throbbed and ached, dropping its head low after the church bombing in Birmingham and the assassinations of JFK and Malcolm X. It clenched its jaw and clutched its fist, chanting, Mississippi, goddamn. Nina Simone's anthem in response to Medgar Evers' murder. With freedom rides and demonstrations, Watts riots and urban uprisings, the 60s raised its voice even as it stiffened its spine. And then, in the spring of 1968, as the decade screeched towards its close, it let out a primal wail. That April, Miles and I were on a tour stop in Seattle, Anytime Miles was on the road, he never wanted to go out for lunch or dinner, preferring always to preserve his energy for his performances. So in the kitchen of the apartment we stayed in, I fixed us something to eat while he sat in the living room, talking on the phone with his attorney, Harold. When their conversation ended, he laid down the phone and looked over at me. Harold said they shot King, he said. I continued stirring my pot of broth, feeling sure that, as usual, Miles was joking. I was just about to blurt out, now that's not funny, when he delivered the remainder of his sentence. And he's dead. I folded like an accordion, my body turning in on itself as I faltered to my knees. The words, a penetrating dagger, stabbed me right in my solar plexus. What? I asked. What did you say? King has been assassinated, Miles told me. He's gone. I will always be amazed at how a singular occurrence can break open the soul of the world. One moment, you're stirring your wooden spoon through a saucepan, lost in the aroma of savory bouillon, oblivious to what awaits. The next moment, a simple turn of the spoon later, you are down on the cold linoleum, arms cradled around yourself numbed into silent weeping. On the evening, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was gunned down on the second floor of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, 
the earth rocked and quaked, and then, all at once, splintered into two. The suddenness of the shift and wrenching pain of it all was, for me, soon followed by a personal gut punch. I was on set filming when the country suffered yet another blow. A lone gunman shot Robert F. Kennedy, then running for president. The world gasped in unison, as it did a day later when he died at Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. Only two short months before, we'd lost King. Most black folks in the country saw RFK as the remaining hope, a candidate intent on extending King's quest for civil rights. Here was a man who promised to end a deeply controversial war overseas in Vietnam, who prompted equality for black Americans who had not been granted first-class citizenship here. King's murder had been devastating on its own. But when Bobby was assassinated, that devastation morphed into delirium. There was a sense, as there is in our times now, that the country had come undone. End quote. So at this point in recording the episode, my daughter is awake, the dog is out and about, and the day is starting in the Anderson household. So you may hear some cameos in the background from the dog or the baby. But I'm going to continue on. The next uh, section I'm going to read talks about the uh, dual discrimination that black women face, being a woman but also being black in the United States. I'll link an episode that I did with Dr. Lakeisha Roney earlier in the podcast about black feminism into the show notes. So anyway, I'm going to hop into this one. Quote, with my spirit ailing from the loss of my mother, I return to work. When you're black in Hollywood, and frankly, when you're black and doing just about anything in this life, you don't have the luxury of sitting on the sidelines for long. Work beckons amid the reality that when you slow down, so does your income. The wealth gap between blacks and whites in the United States, created by decades of systemic injustice, was as evident in the 1970s as it is now. That gap has always been more pronounced for black women. I don't know one black actress who works with the consistency of a white actress who has the same credentials. That truth holds when it comes to gender. Accomplished artists such as Angela Bassett, Viola Davis, and Halle Berry do not have nearly the same script opportunities as, say, Denzel Washington. And even Denzel, brilliant as he is, has fewer options than white male actors of his caliber. In every aspect of society, we black women find ourselves on the bottom rung of what I call the ladder. We are holding on for dear life, I tell you, surviving as our knuckles bleed. As a black actress, even when you're at the so-called pinnacle of your career, your choices are severely limited. How can a black actress ever become a Meryl Streep or Glenn Close if she cannot build the illustrious body of work that is generally available to actors of that stature? It's impossible. The opportunities are just not there for us, which is why I strongly encourage the efforts of black script writers and directors. If our stories do not exist in the mainstream, in part because, despite evidence to the contrary, the industry's power brokers do not fully believe black protagonists will resonate 
with white audiences, we do not have the chance to showcase the full extent of our capabilities. That will change only as we continue bankrolling and scripting our own stories. Even when black women are written into a storyline, we are often cast as characters with no evident depth or backstory, largely included as scaffolding to hold up narratives centered on whites. I was quite fortunate to have landed two layered and emotionally complex characters in Rebecca and Jane, though, as you know, I earned practically nothing for them. The women's movement of the 60s and 70s was focused primarily on the needs of middle and upper class white women, which meant our unique concerns as black women were largely overlooked. We are subject to the dual scourges of racism and sexism, a reality articulated by the black woman elected to Congress, Shirley Chisholm. In 1972, Shirley made history as the first sister to launch a presidential bid as a major party candidate. In the end, she once said, anti-black and anti-female and all forms of discrimination are equivalent to the same thing, anti-humanism. Shirley understood that we live in a world constantly seeking to reduce us as black women, be it through racism or sexism. The women's movement made its strides, and to be sure, many black women lifted their voices alongside those of whites. But in our America, precious little shifted. And then there's the issue of pay. Even with the same competencies, and often stronger ones, black female artists are routinely paid less than their white colleagues. Every black woman knows that reality. This country has never valued us. Sure, Many now take to the streets declaring that Black Lives Matter, and I believe the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor have, at last, removed the scales from the eyes of countless whites. I applaud the awakening. Yet in a country that prioritizes commerce above all, a notion where money has always talked louder than rhetoric, the proof of a perception shift will be evidence in the payment rendered. Enough to put us on par, I hope, with less talented whites who've been earning more for decades. It's easy to say Black Lives Matter. The question is, do they matter enough for this nation to treat and compensate them fairly? Historically, the answer has been a resounding no. During a good year, to be black is to live with an ongoing hum of anxiety, a static ever-present beneath life's high notes. During a plague and racial revolution, to be black is to be rendered deaf by the uproar, knowing that if this virus doesn't take you down, a blue knee on your neck or bullets in your back just might. When you leave your house, you're never quite sure whether you'll make it back alive, and that's no exaggeration. In this country, blacks don't have to go looking for trouble. It finds us. Ahmaud Arbery was murdered in cold blood while out for a jog. Botham Jean was sitting in his own apartment enjoying a bowl of ice cream and watching television when a white officer exploded through his door and snuffed out his life. As bullets rained down on Breonna Taylor, that child was asleep in her bed. All of these young people were under the age of 27. Stop and take that in. If you've been fortunate enough to surpass that milestone, Think back on what your life was like at that point, on what your aspirations were. Can you imagine how many years these babies might have had ahead of them 
how their dreams were cut short by the roar of gunfire, how their families have been left reeling, and then folks have the nerve to bring up black rage. Wouldn't you be seething if for centuries the world placed such little value on your existence? Wouldn't you feel wounded if your ancestors had been treated like beasts, your features and your culture disparaged, your families rustled apart on auction blocks? Wouldn't you cry out in anguish if your country's leaders, rather than renouncing and rectifying such injustice, stoked the flames of it? We're not even allowed our humanity when it comes to expressing the full spectrum of our emotions, whether we're sitting quietly in a corner or forthrightly stating our concerns, many are quick to label us as angry, which goes right along with the age-old narrative that we're dangerous savages, recklessly spewing vitriol. And even as they brand us, they dismiss the abuse that first lit the smoldering embers. This recent racial reckoning is but a comma in a centuries-long sentence, a pause during which many, for the first time, have awakened to the horror of black genocide. And I choose that word intentionally because over and over throughout history, attempts have been made to extinguish us in one way or another, that Americans of all races are now focused on the massacre is indeed progress. Just as it was when Emmett Till's heinous lynching, his mutilated body in that open casket shook the nation from its slumber in 1955. In our current times, I see the outcry as an opportunity for us to unite in action, to move from demonstration to legislation, from picketing to building economic parity. If history and human nature are reliable measures, this window won't be open for long. And as it closes, I find myself wondering, what will become of black people, and of black women in particular? That, as it has been for all of my career, is my chief concern. End quote. So, friends, as I conclude this summer book club, first of all, thank you for tuning in and listening as I challenge myself to go through all of these books and to learn some things and to share some of the insights that I've gained with you. I'm going to be starting on season three for the fall, probably within the next few weeks. And it's going to be a mixture. So the first season of the podcast, I did a lot of interviews with people on certain topics related to mental health as they impact communities of color. And then in the second season, I did book reviews of books that I found to be relevant to communities of color. Season three is going to be a hybrid of the two. So it's likely going to start off with more book reviews. I think I'll expand the scope of which I review books. So this summer, the scope was books related to race and injustice. So there may be some more variety for season three. I also have, at the time of this recording, about five interviews lined up to discuss some topics related to mental health as well. So I hope that you'll tune in. But until the next time, thank you so much for listening and take care. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.